Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. This show is about bringing people from all over the world together to share bicycle stories and make connections. This time we learn how a young man became Bike Dr. Derek. We talk to the cycling Dane who did a 500 kilometer winter cycling challenge, to a quick check with Ray George from the Ohio Gravel Grinders, and then a story kind of even weird for the show, which is finding a bike in a swamp and rescuing it, which turns out to be one of my favorite things to do. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. Sometimes it's really hard to see what you have in common with other people. Other times, it's remarkably easy. When I first saw Derek's feed on Instagram, I didn't see somebody with autism. I didn't know that he uses a computer to talk sometimes. And I didn't know that he struggles with epilepsy. All I saw was somebody who also loves fixing bicycles. So for this story, join Derek and Derek's parents as we find out how a young man named Derek became Bike Dr. Derek. What is it about bicycles that drew you in and made you want to work with them? I think bicycles are very soothing. They are the essence of simplicity. Anyone can ride one and get to another location. Hi, my name is Minerva Santiago. I'm from Pembroke Pines, Florida. I have a son whose name is Derek. Derek is currently 18 years old. At um, probably around 24 months, Derek was diagnosed with autism. He is non-speaking. He is able to communicate by typing. And when he turned 12, he started having seizures. Since then, he's been diagnosed with epilepsy as well. Probably during his teenage years, we became uh, more concerned about Derek as far as his future and what he'd be doing for a living and where he would live and all of those things that I think most special needs parents kind of concern themselves with. And at that point, based on Derek's condition and the employment opportunities that were available, we talked with him and decided that self-employment was probably the best way for him. However, we had no idea what could be something that he would do for a living. Um, We offered many suggestions. Unfortunately, when we were offering those suggestions, we didn't uh, seek Derek's insight or feedback. Until finally, he brought it to our attention that we were all wrong, and his interest was in bicycles. He wanted to learn how to repair bicycles. And I thought that he was kidding, but uh, we since started giving him some lessons, and it turns out that bicycles are Derek's passion. What do you find most enjoyable about working on bikes? On more days than not, 
really think it is most enjoyable to work with parts like the ones that spin. They fascinate me, like puzzle pieces how they go together. Once we discovered that Derek's passion was bicycles, we started giving him a few lessons at home. We, we just really weren't sure how far he could go with repairing the bicycles. For a lot of people, even for people who are familiar with autism, autism is a mystery. You don't understand everything about autism. You know, there's a saying that uh, goes, if you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism because they are each so different. Everything about them can be so different from one person to another. So Derek, I guess, exhibits himself in ways where he understands that people view him as having very little abilities. And he expresses to us that, unfortunately, there's noises that he makes that he can't control. Sometimes he makes noises to cope with things, to cope with sounds, um, to control his thoughts. So there's that aspect of autism that if you just look at what's on the outside and the behaviors that are exhibited, you are led to assume that someone like Derek is not capable of doing much. Um, fortunately, he has parents and a great support team who know otherwise, and we know that Derek is capable. We understand his learning style. So when we gave him like a first bike repair lessons initially, which were just here at the house, it was just some lessons that we had downloaded off of the internet. When we realized that he was capable of doing more than that, that's when we sought out a bicycle mechanic to help us, to help us take this to the next level. Now, there's the bicycle mechanic didn't have any experience working with individuals with autism, and Derek learns differently. You have to present things to him differently. The learning environment needs to be different. So what we've been doing is the bike mechanic will give us, will, will teach the lessons, and as he's teaching those lessons, we're writing them out, and we create almost like a like bullet points or a checklist for Derek. So if he's gonna, whatever task he's gonna do, each task has a checklist connected to it. Derek is a visual learner, and at times he may get distracted and he may need to get redirected, and all you have to do is really point back to his checklist and he'll pick up where he left off but that's an accommodation that he needs. And as long as you understand how the individual can learn, you can pretty much turn anything, I mean, any interest that any individual is interested in, perhaps, and they want to learn to do it for a living like Derek has. I think you can certainly teach them how to do it if it's presented in the right way. So when Derek started to work with the bike mechanic, Initially, he was just practicing on bicycles that the mechanic had on hand. The bike mechanic, his name is Jeff Thorkelson, and he has a nonprofit organization called Recyclable Bicycle Exchange. And so he has plenty of bicycles for you to work on. So initially, Derek started learning some tasks at the shop, and sometimes Jeff would allow Derek to bring home some of the bikes to practice on them at home. And I think probably, he probably worked with him for about I'd say a year before Jeff said, you know, there's no reason for Derek not to start getting his own clients because some of the things Derek is already capable of doing 
and whatever Derek isn't capable of doing yet, I'd be happy to assist him and teach him along the way. And so that's exactly what we did. So as far as the, the name of the business bike, Dr. Derek, that was Derek's choice. He We consulted with him and asked him what he wanted the business to be called. And he figured because he was going to be repairing something and he, he feels like he's helping other people, he chose the doctor aspect of it. And Derek's been very much involved with every decision that we make about the business. We consult with him with regards to logos we gave him choices with regards to the colors for branding we gave him the choices and he selected those and also with regards to the amount of business or customers he's been ready to take on he was very clear at the beginning and very hesitant to take on more than he felt he was capable of so initially he just told us you know i'd feel more comfortable if we just let friends and family know about the business and not really tell anybody else about it yet and that's what we did for a little while and he worked on bikes from friends and relatives and people from our church and that's how he started getting some of his customers and we'd take them to Jeff's shop and as Jeff suggested whatever Derek could do Derek would do and what he couldn't Jeff would assist with and also teach Derek along the way. Derek is more comfortable with, we haven't gone full-blown like advertising. It's almost been like we're taking it step-by-step, step, almost like we're beta testing it to make sure that we're moving at the right pace, that Derek is ready for the next step, and it seems to be working. You know, we're, we're trying to work at Derek's pace. We don't want to take this any faster than than it needs to be. Otherwise, we, we figure the, the business won't be successful. It's not about us or the pace that we feel the business should go at. This is Derek's business and therefore he should determine pretty much everything about the business. And then as far as currently, if somebody wanted to have their bike repaired by Derek, they have different options as how to do that. They can, well, we suggest that they call us or contact us some way, either by text or give us a call to schedule an appointment to make sure somebody's going to be at the shop if they're going to drop it off. Otherwise, we do offer a pickup and delivery service within Broward County which is the county that Derek's bicycle shop is at. What is your favorite part about working with customers? I think my favorite thing is that I get to meet people that might think that it, everyone with autism is not smart. In this hard job, you get to show them that you are just the same as everyone else. I think everyone really thinks that after our time together, that helps to teach others that think people with autism might not be thinking for themselves. Hi, my name is Boaz Nelson Santiago. I am Derek's stepdad and very, very proud stepdad at that. So when I see Derek working on a bicycle, I forget about autism. When I see him working on a bicycle, I forget about his disabilities. I forget about his epilepsy. What I see is a young entrepreneur, a bike mechanic like every other bike mechanic I've seen. I think it's important for parents to be able to look beyond the disability. You know, as parents, at the moments we have made a mistake of uh, having conversations on behalf of Derek without completely involving him. There's been times where 
we have spoken to community members, even individuals who are leaders in the autism community who have stated that someone like Derek, you know, self-employment is beyond his abilities. And I think what we're really trying to do is establish a presence in Derek's life so that he can be his own advocate instead of parents always having to be the advocate for the children. I think people will begin to listen, and I think the message is stronger when Derek can advocate for himself. And I think that the business is an advocate for his abilities. I also think it's an advocate for the entire community. And I also think that it helps when parents like us are trying to request that self-employment be an option. Uh, we're hoping that Derek and his business will be a great case study for other parents and other professionals in the industry that they can look at it and say, you know what, it doesn't matter that the person has epilepsy. It doesn't matter that the person is non-speaking. It doesn't matter that the person does echolalia, walks on his tiptoes, wears a helmet, doesn't speak a whole lot. But what does matter is that within his disabilities, he has his own unique abilities. And I think that is really what we're hoping will be accomplished by way of his business is that he can stand on his own two feet and not need mom and dad to advocate for him, but that he can advocate for himself. Where would people go to find out more or possibly get their bikes fixed by Bike Dr. Derek? So to find out more about Bike Dr. Derek, you can go to his website, which is bikedrderek.com. It's bikedrderek.com. And to get your bike fixed, he's located in Fort Lauderdale. The address is on the website. You can also, and the main shop is Recyclable Bicycle Exchange or RBX. You could probably find it by either one. And with regards to, we also have some great t-shirts. Derek has Bike Dr. Derek t-shirts that have his logo on them. And those are also found on the website. And we have those t-shirts printed by Spectrum Designs. They exclusively employ individuals with autism and similar disabilities, and they're the ones that print our shirts. Derek also has an Instagram. If anybody's on Instagram, they can also follow him there. It's like Dr. Derek. Well, thank you so much for all your work and helping get the story together with me. Uh, no, thank you. If you need anything else, let me know. I also wanted to let you know that, coincidentally, we were looking around for uh, there's not a lot of places that have have like a bike repair school or classes or anything around here at least because I wanted to for myself I wanted to have more like an intensive class for me so that I can help Derek more at the shop and I came across um, the Appalachian Bicycle Institute and I think you did a podcast for them I think I saw it on your yeah. website yeah yeah you did right <laughs> yeah with Jenny Jenny Clista yes yes so I spoke to her recently and I'm supposed to visit her soon. That's cool. Yeah. I'm hoping yeah. to get down there next summer too for maybe do a do a wheel building class myself. No, that's that's awesome. We're we're just one big community. Yeah. That is awesome. That right. is one thing that I noticed about the cycling community. It was nice. So, you know, we've gone together for a few things at, at Jeff's shop and everybody's just everybody's completely different and everybody's just cool with each other, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. Thank you. How do you see your bicycle business impacting your future? The future is not certain. God is the only one that knows. If you like bicycles, you have something in common with many other humans. The mission of this show is to make connections between bicycle lovers all over the world through sharing stories and experiences. 
Here you can be welcomed into the lives of riders, tourers, mechanics, collectors, and other people who have all kinds of connections with bikes and cycling. You never have to worry about being an outsider here at Bike Karma. The old Schwing collector won't mock you for wanting to learn more about your aunt's old bike. The racer won't look down on you because you do less mileage than they do. And the mechanic won't talk down to you because you forgot to do some basic maintenance. This is a positive place where even the experts are still learning. You'll do best if you're open to hearing new stories from the big world of bicycles. There's something new to learn in every segment. You'll learn why mechanics cringe at tri-bikes, why collectors can't stand Walmart bikes, and why steel frame lovers are so in love with Reynolds 531. Even if you never throw a leg over a BMX bike, you'll learn what makes them different and how some flatlanders can make them dance. Even if you never go beyond your daily commute, you can hear what it's like to cycle up a deadly mountain in the Tour de France. And when you go back to your own cycling life, you'll feel more of a connection to others all over the world, and hey, that ain't too bad. So thanks for coming along for the ride with me and the other sharers on the show. If a story comes to mind while you're listening, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Now back to the show. When I was a kid, my favorite superheroes were what I thought were the more realistic ones. Superman just seemed totally magical and unreal. For a while though, I was a huge fan of Green Arrow. I liked his quiver. He had a backpack with arrows of every type. Some were like normal, but some would have like grenades on them. Others would have nets for catching bad guys. I think one even had a green fist instead of an arrowhead that could punch out somebody in the face. It was so cool. There was like an arrow for every situation. Having the right tool for any situation struck a deep resonant chord with me. In a way, I look at my stable of bikes like that quiver of arrows. I'm lucky enough to have a bike for almost every situation. I have an ice bike set up, a snow bike, another one for hot weather touring. I have cruisers and novelty bikes. Unlike Green Arrow though, I sometimes make a pretty bad call and pick the wrong bike for a situation. Like, I could have grabbed a bike with touring fenders, but I didn't on a day that turned really rainy. So if you were going to do something really epic, like a long trip or a fast ride, you'd probably want to pick the best bike in your stable. I would. Pick the appropriate arrow in your quiver, like Green Arrow. Especially if I was going to do something super hard, like 500 kilometers, which is about 310 miles, I would try to pick the absolute best bike for that situation. Scott Nielsen, otherwise known as the Cycling Dane from the UK, usually does like 200 miles a week. So he wanted to shake it up a little bit by maybe picking a different bike to do a 500 kilometer ride on. So for a 500 kilometer ride between Christmas Eve and New Year's, that's winter riding in Denmark, he chose a small wheeled folding bike. Here's his story. So here I am in the middle of nowhere in Denmark. It's raining, it's cold, and I'm completely drenched. And I still have four hours to go before I actually finish my target for the day. And I just think, what am I doing here on a photo bike?
Uh, hi, my name's Scott. I'm the founder of the Cycling Dane YouTube and Facebook page, and uh, I'm a PhD student right now at Bath University, and I'm an avid cycling enthusiast. So, in my normal week, I go to the University of Bath, so the campus is actually up on the top of a hill. So every day I go up a one kilometer hill, which has an average gradient of 10%. But on top of that, I also do around 14 hours a week, and that normally is around 200 miles. And that's comprised of individual training and then training with the local teams, basically. Once again, how many miles per week do you think you tack on? Uh, around 200, give or take. Uh, so, but we have in England, we have very bad weather. These hours are not made up of sunny, beautiful days. They are very much on grey, rainy days, even in the summer. Yeah, the British weather is definitely something that plays a big impact on cycling in England. So how many bicycles do you have? Um, how are we classing ownership? Because uh, I think I have seven. Yeah, seven. Well, that's a totally reasonable number. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why I keep telling my friends, but they, they say no. N plus one. Yeah, N plus one till 60, and then it's very sad. <laughs> yeah. There is a limit. So what are the uh, bikes that you have? Uh, so I've got my uh, normal road bike, which is a specialized tarmac. I've had it for six years. It's a very good bike. I changed the wheels out, so it's more it's lighter. I've got a Cervelo P2. I absolutely adore Cervelo bikes, especially their time trial bikes. I have a Boardman, a hybrid that I just use for commuting. I have a Apollo Solder bike, which is basically similar to the Brompton, but heavier and not as slickly uh, designed. Then I have a Fixie. It was actually made by the T-Mobile, T-Mobile team in the 90s. And I haven't actually ridden it because it's such a beautiful bike. Then I have a Chopper for some reason. Never really ridden that, and then I have one more hybrid, and I think that's my list. Oh wait, I have another. Yeah, I have a Cannondale Carbon Six, which I unfortunately crashed with, so it's been ridden off. But I still count as one of my bikes. So every year there's an event called the Rapid 500, which is quite a big event for road cyclists. It's basically an initiative to get people cycling between Christmas and the New Year period. So in order to accomplish the Rapid 500, you have to ride 500 kilometers between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. The only rules are basically that you have to do 500 kilometers anywhere, anytime, between that, those two dates, and you can basically choose any bike you want. So you have eight days to, to do the Rafa 500, and because it's in December, the weather is typically, it's cold, it's rainy, it's windy, it's all three of them mixed together, and yeah, so that's what the challenge is. It's not riding 500 kilometers in beautiful weather somewhere in California, it's actually riding 500 very hard kilometers where you think every single kilometer, why am I doing this? And you keep going for whatever reason. Yeah, very cold climate and windy, completely windy as well. And you, also the fact that you've just had a lovely Christmas dinner and everyone else is just relaxing during this period, but you're going out there and actually cycling. 
however many hours it would take you to get to the 500 kilometer mark. So you have your stable, you look over your stable of bikes, and you decide to pick. Yeah. So um, when when I was looking to do this challenge, I basically looked at all the bikes I have. I thought about where I would actually do it, and uh, I decided that first of all I would do it in Denmark because well it's colder, it's uh, tougher, but it's also uh, on very straight flat roads. Where in Eng well where in Bath where I live now it's very hard to find flat roads, but in Denmark it's very flat roads. But there is a lot of headwind, so that would make it difficult. But on top of that, to make it a bit more interesting, instead of just taking my normal road bike, I thought I should try something a bit different. So I decided to take my Apollo fold-up bike and see how long it would take me to actually ride 500 kilometers in those eight days. So the Apollo fold-up bike is quite a small bike. It doesn't have wheels anywhere near a road bike. The wheels are 20 inches and it weighs 13 kilograms and you actually only have seven gears, but these, you very quickly, the gears aren't that tough, hard, so you very quickly spin out, which can be a bit annoying. So it's important to have a very high cadence when riding it. Compared to the Brompton, compared to the Brompton, which is a very popular bike, not only in the UK, but I think in the world as well, the Brompton actually has a wheel size of 16 inches. So the wheels are actually a bit big on the Apollo, but they are way, way smaller than my, well, any road bike. So the very first day that I started the challenge was the 24th of December. And in Denmark, we actually celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. So for me, it was a challenge to actually finish the first set of kilometers before Christmas dinner and all this. I actually, what happened was someone drove me into Copenhagen. So I started at the Rafa, Rafa Cafe in, in Copenhagen. And then basically I was riding back from there to where my grandparents were. I did no extra training on my fold-up bike. All my training was on my road bike, so getting used to the bike on the first day and wearing three layers as well, because the weather was really cold, really cold in Denmark at that time. So just getting used to the cold and getting used to not having clipless pedals was something that I completely, in the first few minutes of the ride, was just like, okay, I need to get used to not riding with clipless pedals and not having that ease of, of pedaling. And then also having tires that were tiny, I could feel it straight away. That putting that amount of energy in and you're not getting the same amount of output, that was really tough to deal with and getting passed by old women on their hybrids just relaxingly strolling past you that was another thing that my ego definitely took a few hits in the first few few hours of the ride and then eventually I adapted I got better at pedaling with the bike pedaling on the bike and actually I started to get like uh, tuck myself in because it was very hard to sit upright because because it's so windy in Denmark because you're so close to the sea so I actually tried to like tuck in almost like I was on a TT bike it felt like I was going faster um, I maybe went one or two miles quicker but just the feeling of tucking in was something that I did through the whole week as well so that probably saved me a lot of energy but yeah, the first few hours were a massive shock to the system, the cold weather, the just having 
a different bike, a bike where you don't have the luxury of beautiful gear shifting and heavy gears. Yeah, that was definitely a learning curve. Did you ever consider changing bikes partway through? Uh, yes, I did, but I just thought I've started now, so I have to finish it. And definitely through, I think it was close to the finish, my target was 100 miles that day, give or take. And it was getting dark and I was getting cold and I was hungry and there's all the days built, built up as well. I'm pretty sure like every mile I did counted for more miles than it actually would be if you compared to the effort with a road bike. So I think it was the third day, my legs were really, really tired. <laughs> you're not only cycling on a different bike, but you're also using kind of different muscles because the setup is very different from a road bike. And then even just leaning over was using other muscles. So when the fatigue was building up, I actually did consider using a different bike, but the good thing was my road bike was actually in the UK, so I couldn't actually use that option. So I kind of put myself in a corner where there was only one bike, and so it was either that or nothing. So there was no turning back, that's what I'm trying to say. Did I evenly spread the 500 kilometers? Um, I would say no, it was very kind of how I was feeling. So some days I was feeling really well and I tried to not just go the same place and do the same route up and down. Like I could have gone back and forth to Copenhagen for the whole thing and that would have just been a pointless, it would have been very boring. I tried to kind of use this as an opportunity to go to different places on the island of Shetland, which is, so Denmark's basically comprised of three big islands. When you look at Denmark on the map and where Copenhagen is, I was trying to go not just to Copenhagen, I was trying to go a bit further down. And sometimes I went too far down and then coming back was, uh, yeah, I was basically in the pitch black. So that made it a bit difficult. So I was trying to gauge it with the fact is, uh, one of the days was raining, so I didn't want to, uh, it was raining quite heavily. So I was trying to not ride too much in that heavy rain. So I think that day, that was the fourth day. And I actually did take a rest day because my legs after, I think the third or fourth day were just completely obliterated. So I just wanted to have that one day, but I still managed to do a short ride of around 10 kilometers just to kind of spin the legs. Yeah, there was no real kind of, I'm gonna do, let's say 90 kilometers every single day. It was kind of very sporadic. The final penultimate day, I kind of said, okay, that was going to be one of the big rides. Day six and seven, they were quite big rides. And then the final day was quite a light ride in comparison distance-wise. But yeah, if I was to do it again, I probably would make it a more evenly spread because that would, that would probably have been better for the fatigue level. During the week, I actually, it wasn't a punctureless week. I had a few problems with the back tire, so I actually punctured six times during the week, which is something I've never tried, I'm pretty sure. I don't even have six punctures in a year. Uh, you watch me puncture next week, because yeah, this is bad luck. So six punctures during the week was also completely dreadful. And then puncturing during the rain and you're tired and having to change that was just, yeah, I was just thinking back to it, it was completely demoralizing. Just feeling that back tire going and you're just like, I still have two hours to go. 
before I finish today. So yeah, um, changing a, a back tire on a folder bike compared to a road bike is a lot harder because it's a lot tighter and I found it really difficult. And also when you're cold, so it was really cold and I couldn't do it with my gloves. So I took off my gloves and it was so cold that sometimes I would like have to, my hands, I had to like shake them just to get some heat in in between like adjusting the wheel and trying to get the tire off. So I was literally shaking my hands to try and get some heat back in and like rubbing them just to get some kind of warmth back into it. So I do not recommend changing bike tires in the middle of December in Denmark. That is a horrendous experience. Cold, windy, rainy, all of that, no. Anybody anywhere in the world could do the Rafa 500. Yes. Rafa, who sponsors the Rafa 500, surprise, are a very deluxe, a premium cycling brand for clothing. Extremely good clothing products for cyclists, especially. And they sponsor like the ES education team who ride uh, all the professional races in Europe and all across the world. Yeah, this is a really good initiative by them. And they have, uh, basically, they have these Rafa cafes around they have these Rafa cycle clubs around uh, the world. They, I believe they have a few in the US as well and a few dotted around Europe where they have the shop, but they also have like benefits for members who choose to be part of the Rafa clubs. And uh, in the UK, like the Rafa, Rafa branding is everywhere. When you go on bike rides, everyone, like all these elite uh, bike riders, they very much wear Rafa clothing because they're, it's, it's very, well-designed and premium cycling clothing, basically. It's very good quality. And then uh, Rafa, they have this view that they want to kind of change cycling as well, professional cycling. They want to make it more engaging with the fans. So having something like Rafa 500 on Strava and things like that, basically trying to engage more with fans. So I would encourage basically everyone listening to do the Rafa 500. You don't have to do it on a fold-up bike. It's just a great way to kind of get out and do something in between Christmas and New Year because it's very much a period where you don't, many people don't really have things to do. So it's just a great way to have a target between that period and actually keep fit and get rid of all of those calories that you build up during Christmas. So you can do it on any bike. Please don't do it on a fold-up bike. You just need to have Strava and then the Strava will record your ride when you turn it on, of course. And yeah, simply just through that week and a bit, build up uh, your mileage to 500 and then you get your badge to show that you've done the Rafa 500. Yeah, that's basically, so it's very easy. So now I'm going to get philosophical with you. Yeah. Okay. So what is it about people like us who like to do something weird like that? Like I find joy in not being clipped in on a group ride sometimes just because it rocks everybody's world. 
when you do something not expected, what is, what is the draw of that? What are we what are we trying to do when we get that? Are we trying to get a rise out of people, or are we just trying to get we trying to shake it up? Why 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 did you do it on a folding bike? Like where what do you think philosophically deep down? Why did you do it? Um, why why would people? Yeah, why do we do crazy things? Um, like there was a better it, bike to pick, you know, for that particular yeah. purpose. But you wanted to do it on this one. Why did you want to shake it up? Were you shaking it up for other people? Were you shaking it up for you? I think, yeah, I think often you just get like these crazy thoughts where you just think, you think of something crazy and you think, ah, is that possible? And um, yeah, some people choose to act on them and other people choose to just let them pass by. It just seemed too easy to do it on, on a road bike, for example. So... Okay, that's probably a bit uh, understatement, but challenging the norm and actually just doing something different, not just not just being a sheep in the herd, actually trying, yeah, challenge the norm, do something a bit different, don't just follow everyone else, think for yourself, try, try something funny, why not? Did you ever watch The Muppet Show? Yes. It's totally a ganto move, you know? Yeah. It's fun, it shakes it up. I, I think it's sometimes just to make me laugh at myself if I start taking it too seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. I completely agree with that. Do you have another challenge you want to do it on? Or is they, are you good with that now? You're moving on to other things. So I am doing another challenge on a fold-up bike, but that's still in the works. But I am very much doing the Rafa 500 next year again, just to see how well I would do on a taking it from one extreme to the other. So having the fold-up bike at one end, and then next year, basically what I'm thinking of doing is doing it on my Cervelo P2. <laughs> so taking a completely different end of the spectrum and just seeing how fast I could actually do it without actually stopping or something similar to that. That's something that I was thinking about doing. So not leaving leaving the Rafa 500 completely, but actually doing it again with a much, much better bike and just seeing how quickly I could actually do 500 kilometers in the same time frame. So on the YouTube channel, we are actually, we do different silly, crazy projects like this. So the Giro d'Italia, which is, it's essentially like the Tour de France, but in Italy. So it's a three week stage race. And I actually got to go down to the start this year. They were starting in Bologna. And the first stage was a race up a beautiful hill in Bologna called San Luca. So the pros were going up this climb and it was, I think it's around eight, 10% average and it goes up for two kilometers, I believe. So instead of doing it again on a fancy road bike, the day before the pros went through it, I actually went up it, but on a hybrid rental bike. This bike was probably like 15 kilograms in weight. And uh, yeah, I tried to cycle that thing off the San Luca. I've, at one point there was a, I think it was 13% or 10% um, incline. And I have categorically never felt pain like I felt pain there. So we, we actually filmed this and it was quite funny because at the bottom of the time, just before I was starting, a guy called Brian Newgold, which is a very famous Danish cycling commentator, we happened to bump into him. And he, he looked at me and he said, are you cycling up that thing, up San Luca? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, that's impossible. No one can do that. No one will able 
could ever do that. And I was like, oh, that's like the wrong word to say to me. Yeah, that climb. That, so that's like one of the crazy things that we try and do. We don't want to just, I, I'm not a particularly good vlogger. So we try and do like these more exciting videos. We also do a lot of race coverage. We look at races, but it's not, we're not just doing a vlogging channel or something like that because I'm not very good at that. So we try and do something a bit different. We have a, another project where a friend of mine, there's something called the Dragon Ride in, in the UK. This is essentially a ride they have in Wales. Um, where they cl they don't close the roads, but they have a route, and it's a very monstrous route through a number of different climbs. It's like a Grand Fondo. Yeah, it is a Grand Fondo. And basically, I'm doing that ride with my friend, who's a six foot two boxer, big, muscly guy, completely different to me. I'm like six foot nine, skinny, um, of 149 pounds, and he's a lot more muscly than me. So we thought that would be quite a funny video, seeing the two extremes how he would fare on a on a course like that compared to me and yeah that's some of the things that we've got planned and we also had a video where my friend he used to be on the hong kong national gymnastics team and then we basically did um, a swap so he tried i tried gymnastics i was completely dreadful and then he tried some cycling things like when people think oh uh, we're gonna make a gymnast do cycling instead of doing the conventional like a bike race or something like that and test them up the climb We just thought it would be funny to see how quickly he could change a inner tube because that's something he's never done in his life before and it's something that all cyclists can relate to <laughs> He had a very good go at it So if people want to see all this stuff where would they go? Oh, so yeah, if you want to check out our videos or uh, our Facebook page we we're basically under the brand The Cycling Dane in one word. So The Cycling Dane, no spaces anywhere. We have the YouTube channel and we have the Facebook page as well. We are nearly at 6,000 likes on the Facebook page and uh, just under 300 subscribers on YouTube. But I'm start we're starting to figure out how YouTube works properly. So yeah, hopefully that should grow a bit more. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Now it's time for the mid-roll announcements and thank yous. I'd like to thank Trainman1957 and Commuter with a K for leaving really nice reviews on iTunes. Also like to thank Murray, CC Rider, PBG4B51Day, and Vultures for following on Podbeam. Also thanks to Luke Lopez who posted some nice comments on our Strava Club, which anybody can join. And a big thank you to everyone who's downloaded in all 50 states and over 50 countries over 50,000 times. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You can help the show by helping the supporters of the show like Fred Thomas from The Frame and Wheel. Fred's a good guy whose whole business is based upon saving you time, space, and cash. The Frame and Wheel provides eBay selling services to cyclists, bike shops, bike companies, bike racing teams, and cycling-related nonprofit organizations throughout New England. The Frame and Wheel does all the hard work for you. Listing, pricing, photography, and they've got several options of how they'll work with you. One option might be just making you an offer for your stuff and paying you for it. 
Another option is to list it for you and give you the money when it sells. But they've also got other options where they can apply the sale price towards new stuff. Or maybe take the proceeds and apply them to a fundraiser or a charity that you work with. We all probably have cycling stuff to sell, but if you're in the market to buy instead, check out the Frame & Wheel store on eBay or the Frame & Wheel Bike Gear Exchange group on Facebook. Fred's really good at pricing, listing, and photography. The next time you're on Instagram or Facebook, go ahead and check out his page. See how good he can make a wheel set look, or how good that derailleur looks. I wish he could make me look as good as he makes some of those bike parts look. So if you've got bicycles, parts, or some cycling accessories that you'd like to move on, please check out the frame and wheel. Time, space, cash, the frame and wheel can help with that. Now back to the show. So I tend to suffer from seasonal changes. The decreasing daylight is kind of claustrophobic to me. But cutting through all that this year was a genuine adventure. Clive Cussler is an author of adventure stories that go back into the 1970s. His stories always involve like lost planes, shipwrecks, sunken cities, and of course, lost treasure. One of his characters, Dirk Pitt, notoriously found the Titanic back before it was actually discovered by Robert Ballard and raised it from its watery grave using some industrial-sized balloons stuffed into the hull. Spoiler alert, he then triumphantly sails the Titanic guided by tugboats into New York Harbor decades after it sank. Pretty fantastic. We now know that the Titanic actually broke into pieces and that this would have been impossible, but it made a really good adventure story back when I was a kid and Jimmy Carter was still the president. Throughout my life, the idea of salvaging abandoned wrecks released chemicals in my brain, flooding me with euphoric imaginings. Whether it was the hulk of a small ship on a sandbar in the river in the town that I grew up on, or old cars in the middle of the woods miles from the nearest road, I can also remember every abandoned bicycle I've ever seen, even those I couldn't rescue. There was one about 20 years ago, a Columbia 10-speed thrown into a pond in the park next to the high school. A BNX I found abandoned for years on the side of the train tracks where few people would ever walk. There was a rusty balloon tire bike left to rust in the woods adjacent to an abandoned farm. It was set aside a tree so long, the deep, unforgiving rust had made every part unsalvageable except for a small piece of tire with the interlocking chain pattern from a long time ago, and that's now hanging on the wall of my workshop. When I first started fixing bikes, I found one in a small river at the University of Hartford. It was probably stolen and ditched. The bike had been in the water long enough to rust through the spokes, but the chromed rally frame was still only covered in superficial rust. After the recovery and getting wet feet, I strapped it onto the top of my minivan. I let it soak in some strategically placed WD-40 for about a month, and then it took my son and I about one weekend to get it back together and in riding condition. I don't know why, but bringing an abandoned bike back to life scratches an itch somewhere deep inside of my soul. When I went for a run earlier this fall in Manchester, I ran by a drainage area alongside a rail to trail. Sticking out of a small pond in the wetland was a shopping carriage and the wheel of a bike. A few days later, Chris Brown and I, 
no relation. He returned with a truck, some ropes, a hook fashioned from the handlebars of an old 10-speed, and with a theme to Indiana Jones pumping in my head to rescue a bike that we would soon affectionately name the Swamp Goose. So join me on this part real adventure, part nerdy delusion, Operation Swamp Goose. Hey, Chris Brown. I can think of no one else that I'd rather go on this particular adventure with. As much, as much as you, because I can see you getting into it as much as I might. I, I mean, isn't everyone like that? I mean, I'm just, I'm, it just seems like, you know, kind of common practice. You see a submerged bike, you want to raise it up. So your odds for getting this bike are 50-50? No, the odds of getting wet are 50-50. What are the odds of getting the bike regardless? I think, um, well, does partial bike getting count? Like if you got, if, if say you got it, but you know, part of it just like the muck wouldn't let go of it. So, so would that count? If you got 75% of the bike, would that count as a 75% recovery? I think that would be insane because then it means that the bike was so held onto by the, the lady of the lake or stream or cesspool. I don't know what we're pulling it out of. I think it's the runoff from a pond. I think maybe mire. Okay, from it's the mire. It's the mire. That just sounds, I don't know, it sounds more evocative. Why does this trigger me so to have such feelings of adventure? I mean, can you explain it for others? Because I'm not even sure I can explain it. Um, I think it's a healthy outlet for man's need for discovery you're like mining it's like a gold rush for high 10 steel it's like almost like a shipwreck to me it's yeah. like finding a shipwreck yeah this could be if it's a tandem it could be like a tandem tannic or something okay well we're on route now and we're going to discuss some strategy i've got rope and i've got a makeshift grappling hook and then i've got just a piece of iron that's shaped like a hook kind of and then i've got a pair of old narrow road bars mm, i like the road bar idea i like that that's kind of it's um it's a, it's a homeopathic approach it's use, creative, use like is it effective like materials to it they'll attract one another using a bike to get the bike mm -hmm. so we're talking about the three possibilities of how it got there either theft frustration or perhaps a Viking funeral of sorts for a beloved bike? I think it, beyond Viking funeral, I mean, it could be we, the, there have been a couple of cases recently. There was one in Vermont where uh, some kid with a GoPro in a lakes found a submerged car and they found a woman in the driver's seat who'd been missing since the 1990s. So it could be someone who was on their way to a party 20 years ago and they've got panniers full of Bartles and James wine coolers and their Walkman and some good mixtapes and they just vanished. Now I'm actually getting a sinking feeling about it. To dump bump. Well, I hope not. It looks, I have to guess, it looks like a BMX from the pedals and from the 20 inch wheels. But it'd be horrible if we found a body next to it. 
It would be, but it would give closure to the family of the long-lost BMX tourer. That's true. That's true. We're here to help. Okay, so here we are on the recorder at the site. We're hooking our hooks up to the ropes. How, how far would you say we are away from the from the submerged bicycle? I'd say about 17 and a half feet. Right. 17 feet. Okay, I was going to say 60, but that was uh, rounding off to the nearest 60. Oh, I was using metric feet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you're about right. That's bizarrely correct, which is why you, you bring Chris Brown around for these things. Bizarrely correct is the best kind of correct. All right, so here we go. Now you've chosen the one that looks like it's an old set of handlebars, which kind of looks like a hook. Kind of looks like two hooks. Yeah. Kind of like looks like a pair of horns. And I've got the one which is uh, three bicycle hanger type hooks kind of twisted together. And then I've done this horrible granny knot looking thing, so let's, let's see how this goes. Tying. I feel like I should tie the end to my leg just in case it's that hole. Okay, that was, that was awful. Oh, that is a definite hit. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Jesus, hold on, man. Let me get video of this here. You're making it look easy. Apparently, I brought a pro here. All right, so Chris got it on the first hook, and here it comes. All right, raise the Titanic. Lots of gurgling and bubbling. And all right, well, definitely a BMX. What kind of crank do you see? Astabula. Astabula. So we're not that high end. And flame, flame tread tires. Is that a U-brake on the back? Um, yes. Okay, so we've got. Damn, man. You got the skills to pay the bills. Tell Eversource that. I, I will. <laughs> I will email them this picture of you fishing. And that's great. <laughs> I even need to use my hook. I thought we were going to be here for like a half an hour. These handlebars are awesome. That was like... I'm thinking mongoose. It could be a mongoose. I, think it... oh, I see a little bit of red on there. That's good. A little bit of color. Right. This is awesome. All right, let's take a victory shot here. Oh, this is amazing, man. <laughs> this is good. All right, how long do you think it's been in there? If you had to make a guess. Um, there's some aquatic growth upon it. The, the, the muck has uh, overtaken somewhat. So I think it's got uh, you know, at least several months, if not yeah. years. I mean, the hope for me is that the, the red alloy on the, on the pins on the back, on the pegs, is not totally covered in muck, which is weird. And there is a little bit of clean brake surface, and the rubber seems there. I think we need to just haul this sucker back and then uh, power wash it, and let's see what goes on. The fighter. If I ever go big game fishing, it's going to be with you. Ah! <laughs> Don't let it pull you back. I need a handlebar pretty much. 
not touch it at this point. <laughs> All right, then. Oh, wow. It's like some weird mongoose. It's not like the, looks like old style lettering, doesn't it? No, this is a... Uh, is it like one of those trying to be retro ones? Yeah, because the flame tires are not super old. It was almost like the bike was trying to delve back into the water. All right, I'm the thing about touching a slimy wet bike is that you don't want to touch a slimy wet bike. So carrying it is a lot more difficult than normal. We then needed to carry it back from the pond to the parking lot. There was a lot of tall grass and bushes to get through. Do you want the classic fisherman shot? Let's do the classic fisherman shot with the bridge in the back. Another, like an overhead thing you could hang it yeah that's okay it's good like that just hold it upright there you go i'm glad nobody came by to see us holding this bicycle this slimy bicycle like a trophy fish like when you were dragging it mm-hmm i mean that's that's moving well the headset's a little loose we should throw it back yeah we threw the swamp plant encrusted bike in the back of the truck. Would you like some hand sanitizer? Do you think it was ever going to be that easy, or did you think you were going to make oh, it look that easy? Um, that went surprisingly well. <laughs> I mean, you hooked it on the first shot. Yeah. I mean, I heard, I heard clank. And then you were already pulling it towards shore, and it was... Yeah, that was a happy surprise. I mean, sometimes it just comes together, apparently. Yeah. Swampendipity, I think it's called. Yeah. I mean, Clive Custler, eat your heart out, man. We got it in one. You had to dig up, like, a whole parking lot to find that submarine. In keeping with Pirates of the Caribbean theme, there's a cutlass. <laughs> So yeah, I don't think it's had enough time to rust all the way through the frame. No. Yeah, considering the chain and the wheels turned reasonably freely, quite freely. I was taken back a little bit by the bubbles that were coming up from the sides that of was the bike when we got there. That was that was a little weird. Some of those were actually from the drop bars. Yeah, 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 but before that. Oh, gotcha. There was movement. Like somebody, some ocean creature had made it, or you know, swamp creature had made it their home. Oh yeah, I mean a pretty, I mean you could fit a, if it wound itself in pretty good, you could fit a five foot snake inside those tubing, so there's no telling it's not still there. This is how the zombie apocalypse starts, with the bike that was pulled. Somebody threw it in there to stop the apocalypse and we went ahead and yanked it out. Yeah, it was actually, yeah, they were just plugging up a portal to, mm -hmm. to hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh. You know, that's always a precaution. We just unleashed it. But, you know. I mean, hand sanitizer is going to take care of most of that. I mean, it'll, after you've cauterized the wound. The wound. Well, at least we're going back to Hartford now. Yeah, I mean, generally. deal with the portal to hell. Yeah, know? luckily the Connecticut River is historically a barrier to most. Um, well, thank God for that. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. It was actually written into the charter in the event of a portal to hell, east of the river can suck it. 
I believe is what um, Thomas Thomas ye, Hooker wrote that. Ye can suck it. Yeah, <laughs> sucketh it. So what about curses? Like King Tut's tomb, right? Very exciting. Guy discovers and everything. Dead after that. You know, this is such such a lesser thing than King Tut's tomb that I'm thinking. You know, the curse could be something like could be like your zippers down one day and you didn't notice it. Yeah. Or your shoelaces untie themselves a little bit more than they used to. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I could see uh, from this day forth. It would it would be a really like lackluster curse. It's like from this day forth, those that disturb the swamp goose shall have six percent greater instances of hangnails than the greater populace. I wonder if we get it running again, if we get it rolling, I think anybody will ever appreciate the fact that it was submerged. Like that kid riding down the street is going to have the spirit of the swamp in it. I mean, I think it'll probably, you're going to have to just paint it. Or do you think museum? You're going to have to paint it swamp green and just add, you know, just swamp plants, you know, even artificial ones after the fact. It could be, maybe that's, maybe that could be. The condition for whoever rides it is they have to wear a Swamp Thing outfit. There is a, um, a book that I enjoyed as a child called Yob Gorgle Mystery Monster of Lake Ontario by Daniel Pinkwater. I know we've all read it. And uh, there was a, an eccentric millionaire character in the book who one day a year would open up a used car lot where he would sell vehicles for extraordinarily cheap prices with some sort of strange stipulation. Like, you can have a Cadillac for $5, but you have to wear a chicken suit while driving it. Well, as you can tell from the post-recovery banter, we were feeling pretty good about pulling the bike out, but we started spiraling off into absurd conversations. So we'll pick it up again when we recover at BC Co., a community bike shop in Hartford, Connecticut. Chris Brown, here we are back at BC Co. The bike is actually starting to smell a lot more now that it's been exposed to oxygen. A curious chemical reaction. Forensically, I'm noting it. Um, yeah, I got nothing. Uh... <laughs> I appreciate all your help in uh, snagging it on one. You know that now people from all around the world are going to be looking for you to try and help them snag bikes out of rivers and lakes and ponds and whatever we were just at. I, bike towing and recovery, I think, has some potential there, sort of bike AAA. It's, it, I've really been looking for an excuse to mount a 12-volt winch on the Yuba anyway, so... Well, you definitely have room for it. And the hat, very Jacques Cousteau today. Indeed. I think... Um, yeah, maybe I think we need to. This might be a grant opportunity to like the the bicycle calypso. Wow, I just I just saw the future. Well, Chris Brown, thank you very much. You're welcome, and go uh, head out to your truck and grab that bike and smell the future. I said goodbye to Chris and headed to the car wash. Now we're at the car wash. Spray this off. The smell has gotten worse with exposure to oxygen. lathered up the bike with the power suds and then tried to blast off as much as I could. 
It cleaned off rather nicely and I was very surprised to see that the tires were still holding a little bit of air. This archaeological artifact was a study in contrast. Part of it had deep, deep algae growing in thick layers. And yet, the chain still worked. The tires still held air. My nerdy science teacher mind was trying to figure out if there was a way to determine the age of the bike in the pond by how much plant life had grown on it. But gradually my thoughts turned to who the last rider of this bike was. What happened that day when it ended up going into the swamp. I might never know what really happened that day. Why somebody threw the bike into the swamp. But I have some strong clues. And my best guess, the one that I'm probably going to stick with, is that somebody got frustrated because the headset loosened up, and not knowing how to fix it, they ended up taking it out on the bike, cruelly abandoning it for a laugh. Getting it home, I pre-lubricated some of the parts in anticipation of disassembly. I put it aside. A few days later, I took it apart. Magic Erasers did a great job of cleaning up the frame, which was fairly well intact. I did find a couple of lead fishing sinkers stuck in the spokes, indicating that somebody either chose a very poor fishing spot or this bike had moved a little bit, maybe from the larger body of water upstream. Looking at the bike like an archaeologist, I just enjoyed fixing it. Cleaning it and letting it air out for a week had certainly done the trick. Even the seat was still usable by putting a few squirts of Febreze underneath the rips. After checking it over thoroughly and giving it a couple of test rides, I donated it locally with my fingers crossed that somebody would store it indoors from now on. If you'd like to see the pictures that go along with this story, please check out my Instagram feed. A big thanks again to Chris Brown, who I knew was the guy to pick for this adventure, because you might remember a few episodes back, he moved a dryer that he bought on Craigslist using his bicycle. I know this story was a little goofy and probably a little bit more self-indulgent than normal, but I hope you liked it anyway. I had a fun time fixing this bike. Too, too long. And the chain I've seen worse in terrestrial bikes. The pedals spin around really freely. I think this could work out. This bike could ride again, definitely. And now Raymond George with the ABC Quick Check for this episode. So I'm Ray George with Ohio Gravel Grinders. You may have heard some of my stories on the Bike Karma podcast, episode 38. Check it out if you haven't. Before every ride, we go out and make sure that we do an ABC Quick Check. So we say the ABCs. Uh, we check the air in our tires. 
We make sure that we have adequate tire pressure for the conditions we're going to be riding in. Sometimes it's pavement. A lot of times it's gravel. We check our brakes. We look at the brake pads. We check the brake levers, make sure they're actually stopping. And if the brake pads need replaced, we replace them. We also look at the rotors occasionally, make sure that there's no bad wear on them. Or your rims, if you've got rim brakes. And we check our chain. We look at the chain. I can't really tell by visual whether they're stretched, but I look and see if there's any anything twisted or anything looking weird. And I look at the cogs and the cassette, make sure that there's no broken teeth. And I also check a quick release or a through axle. You want to make sure the through axle is torqued down enough to keep the wheel on. And if your quick release is actually holding down the wheel, and then, uh, you know, you want to check yourself before you wreck yourself. So you check your bike. You don't want to wreck. Keep the rubber side down. So if you get a chance, listen in on the Bike Karma Podcast, episode 38, or check out our website at ohiogravelgrinders.com. We organize gravel rides in the Ohio area, central Ohio, and to the east, to the north, and the south of Columbus, Ohio, on a weekly basis. Thanks, Ray. And remember, every time, no matter what kind of bike or what kind of riding you do, do an ABC Quick Check before you ride. Well, this brings us to the end of another ride on the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. Thanks a lot for coming along. I'd like to thank Ray Scott, Derek, and Chris. And as always, Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. Thank you very much for letting us use that. You can go check it out at Mobjack or by searching up Keller Glass and hearing some newer stuff. The rest of the background music used in the show is royalty free and we'd like to thank those musicians as well. If you have any feedback or maybe a story idea for the show or you'd like some stickers or maybe you have a product that might be a good fit for our show, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Thanks to Fred Thomas at The Frame and Wheel and AD Bikes. Please go check them out whenever you're online, especially Instagram. There's some great feed there. The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright, trademark, the cool cat logo that you've seen by my daughter. All of those intellectual property rights are reserved and asserted. Thanks to everybody who's waiting for their stories in the queue to come out. I really appreciate your patience. It takes a long time to make an episode especially if one is feeling under the weather or perhaps trying to beat the weather and get a ride in. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening to the show. I appreciate it. People all over the world. It's kind of cool. By the by, if you know Greg LeMond or Oprah Winfrey and you think you might have some swing with getting them onto my show for even like five minutes, I would really love that. And hey, Greenland, come on. Come on, Greenland. Just one person in Greenland. Give it a listen. And finally, if you are not sure whether or not you're ready to share a story on the show, but you would like to be on, you could do the ABC Quick Check. So just email me, bikekarmaguy at gmail.com, and you could do the ABC Quick Check and see how you like being on the show. There's a lot of great stories. I got to go at it. So until next time, keep it wheel. Oh